Thank you, Huey. Uh, I, well, how, what do I say? Uh, thank you for letting me be here. It's a joy to be here on a special day in which uh, James is celebrating the an addition to his family. And we, we missed having VBS with you this summer. And that's been a tradition we've had the last several years, but this has been an extremely busy calendar year for us. We had our 70th anniversary uh, back in April and a lot of special events around that. And you guys were busy, so uh, we opted for a, sp- a different event. But we look forward to some future ministry events together as well. And I'm glad to be here today and share with you in worship. I'm also thankful for the adjustment to your uh, worship service. Uh, I have to be at my church at 11 o'clock uh, to help lead in worship there, and we have a guest speaker. So I appreciate the little adjustment that you're making today uh, to allow me to start preaching a little earlier. Well, my Bible is open to the 11th Psalm, and I invite you to turn there as it was just read for us, Psalm 11. The title of this study this morning perhaps seems a little funny. It doesn't take faith to fly. And no, this is not some positive thinking sort of message. You know, there, there's a song out there that says, I believe I can fly. You've heard this. Well, this psalm is going to teach us you don't need to believe anything to fly. <laughs> it's a psalm about trusting God instead of running away. Some people are very afraid to fly. You know, my grandmother, who lives in Kentucky, refused to ever step onto an airplane. It's because when she was a little girl, there was a biplane flying over her veil in the Appalachian Mountains, and one of the people fell out of it. And uh, that so terrified her that she refused ever to get on an airplane. There's other people who maybe don't have that same cause for uh, fear of flying, but uh, it is amazing, isn't it, to see how many people there are who just won't get in a plane. And yet statistics tell us we're much safer flying than we are driving, and that... uh, I guess plane accidents are more sensational than car accidents. You know, ancient peoples did not have a fear of flying like we do. And for good reason. They never did it before. They looked at it from a different perspective. They wondered and wished that they could fly. Uh, And you find references to this in the poetry of ancient literature and different peoples. And in the Psalms, we find references sometimes to this wish that they could be like a bird and fly away. David, on another occasion, writes in Psalm 55, verses 5 to 6, Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. And I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Psalm 11, which we're going to study together this morning, is about another period of adversity in David's life. But in this trial in which he enters... He understands that fleeing, running away, is exactly not what God wishes him to do. Those who study uh, human behavior uh, have observed that when people are in times of crisis, that they tend to respond with two different kinds of reactions. Either they fight, or the thing that rhymes with it is flight. You've heard of this, the fight-flight response. And that's what many of us are prone to do when we come in times of great difficulty. David's friends, we're told from this psalm, were telling David that he needed to run away. But David responds instead by writing this psalm of trust. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's a simple statement that I think summarizes the teaching of this passage. Our adversities call for faith 
not flight. Our adversities call for faith, not flight. These seven verses easily break up, I think, into two halves. Verses 1 to 3 and then verses 4 to 7. And from those two, these two movements of the psalm, we'll find our two main points this morning. And by way of preview, they are these things. The first, that fear tempts us to flee adversity that we ought to face. But secondly, faith strengthens us to face adversity that we want to flee. Now, the superscription of this psalm tells us that David wrote it. In the small print on your Bible, it might say something like this, for the choir director, a psalm of David. We've not told anything else about when it was that David wrote this psalm. Sometimes these superscriptions give us historical background information, but this one doesn't. Most scholars who read through this portion and believe that David actually wrote it are inclined to think that this is speaking of the time when David was in Saul's court, when he was serving King Saul in his uh, capital city. And if you remember from your study of your reading of 1 Samuel, uh, Saul became very, very jealous of David and intrigue filled the court. And David's life was endangered on numerous occasions. Other courtiers in the capital city were provoked to jealousy and they began making accusations and schemes against David. Perhaps that's the setting for this psalm. But whatever the setting is, it's David's friends who were encouraging David to run away, to flee like a bird. But instead of joining them in their fearful concerns, David responds with trust. For now, at least, he must stay. And he's confident that the refuge that he has found in the Lord is far stronger than any foe that there might be that faces him. The first phrase of the psalm, I think, is a good summary of the entire psalm and perhaps even the thesis statement of the psalm. At the beginning of verse 1, it says, In the Lord I take refuge. This could even be a good title for this psalm. And what follows teaches us that adversity calls for faith, not flight. Look with me in verses 1 to 3 at the first movement of this psalm. And note how fear tempts us to flee adversity we ought to face. I see in the end of verse 1 that fear tells us to respond hastily. David asks, How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain. David's friends have looked at his situation and they've panicked. They've told him to head for the hills. It was typical in Palestine. It is typical that when birds flee, foes that they run, or they fly rather, as quickly as they can towards the trees, toward the forests. And the forests in Israel were mostly in the mountains, mountainsides. There's been a lot of deforesting now. There's perhaps couldn't be said as much today. The mountains of Judah had a lot more trees back then. They were great places of refuge. They were numerous caves and steep cliffs and inaccessible rocks. And when his friends say, flee as a bird to your mountain, they're thinking that David would perhaps go off into one of those desert regions as he had done on prior occasions and would in occasions yet to come. 
But at this time, David, knowing his circumstance and knowing what his own heart is like, perceives that the correct response to this trial is not for him to escape, but to seek asylum in God. To face this adversity and not flee from it. David had seen God's hands before, God's uh, power before. Uh, with a staff and a pair of hands, he had fended off wild beasts with the help of God. With a sling and a rock, he had brought down Goliath. He did not need to flee from either one of those foes. And so David admonishes his friends. He asks them, how can you say this to me? How can you respond this unbelievingly? How can you react with such panic? How can you tell me to react so impulsively when I have found refuge in God? You know, sometimes very well-intentioned people give us advice that's not really all that wise or fitting to our circumstance. They may be thinking of the best for us, looking out for our interests. But perhaps what they suggest to you is not God's best response for you. Let me give some examples I think that we can see very clearly. Like the friend who tells you that you need to just leave your job because things are just too bad. You know, you've confided in them, some struggles you have. And they're like, man, ditch that job. Like the co-worker who tells you that because your husband or your wife is such a good for nothing, you ought to just walk out the door. How many people are there in the world today, not just in the Christian community, but throughout the world who have sh- have, should have finished their college degrees but instead decided to quit because it was too difficult? How many people have retired too early because work was too frustrating? How many children have there been who have been aborted because the thought of raising them was too much for their would-be parents? How many spouses have been deserted because of the well-meaning but ill-advised counsel of friends? How many Christians have left churches over issues not worth leaving, avoided problems that could have been addressed in other ways? Fear tells us to respond hastily. Now, there are times when it is appropriate to leave a situation. Joseph and Mary took the baby Jesus and fled to Egypt at the prompting of God. Jesus Himself even escaped from an angry crowd that He faced in Nazareth. The Apostle Paul on numerous occasions fled from cities when he was under duress. So, don't misunderstand. David's response here is not teaching that it's it's always wrong to leave a situation. It's, It's not that. But rather, what David is countering here is this tendency, I suppose we could call it the flea reflex. That part of us that just wants to leave as soon as there's the, the least amount of trouble or as soon as there's some sign of distress or panic, we're out of there. Yesterday, uh, several of us took uh, the teens from our church for a, a fun outing out to Catalina Island. And uh, we kayaked, but, and mostly spent a lot of money. Uh, but there's a lot of interesting things out at Catalina, and one of them that you can see at night 
is the Catalina flying fish. Have any of you heard of that before? A few of you have. Rest of, go to Catalina. See it for yourself. These, they grow to about two feet long, and they have very wide fins. They're called flying fish because when they get scared, they surge out of the water and glide. They, they don't actually fly. They glide, but somehow the gliding fish doesn't sound as you know, appealing and uh, doesn't sell as much. And they can uh, actually glide if the wind catches them for up to 45, 50 seconds. That's uh, quite an amazing thing to see. But the reason they do that is because they're scared to death. They hear noises under the water. They sense that something else is coming by. And their rear fin flaps something like 60 times a second. And they're out of there. For them, it's an automatic reflex. They don't have time to think. And once they get airborne, they have no control of where they go. I mean, they fly into boats. They hit people. It's it's really kind of a comical thing. That's the way they're made. And I suppose in a way, maybe that's the way we're made too. Uh, in, in our fallenness and in our lack of trust of God, when circumstances approaches that distress us, we tend to flee. And it's that kind of reflex that David is encouraging us to suppress with faith in God instead. It takes wisdom to know when to stay and when to leave. And wisdom does not come quickly. It takes wisdom to know when it's time to leave that difficult work environment or whether to stay there, whether to quit an academic program or to continue with it. How long should a wife stay around in the house when the husband is threatening with physical abuse? That takes wisdom. How does a teenager respond uh, when he's 17 years old and his unbelieving parents continue to paddle him when he does something that displeases them? How do you respond to that? Do you leave? That, That takes wisdom. I'd like to quote to you from a great theologian named Kenny Rogers. And he wrote, You've got to know when to fold them, know when to hold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. How many of you don't know, have a clue what that's about? Okay, a few. It's about gambling. Yeah. Playing cards. I don't normally look to Kenny Rogers for counsel in my life, but what he's saying in card playing, there's a certain kind of skill that you need to accrue to know how to respond to the different things that come across at the table. And you know what wisdom is, is skill in life. And wisdom is something we need to know when we need to leave, when to stay. David, looking at his circumstances that he was in, whatever those specific circumstances were, knew that the proper thing for him to do at this point was to stay. And not seek escape, but rather asylum in God who was his refuge. God has promised us to give the kind of wisdom that we need for that. Isn't this not what James chapter 1 talks about? If any of you lacks wisdom in dealing with the trials of life, the context suggests, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and does not upbraid them. Fear tells us to respond hastily. Another thing fear tells us, I see in verse 2, fear tells us to expect tragedy. tells us to expect the worst. Verse 2 is a continuation of a quote of David's friends. They say, For behold, the wicked bend the bow 
They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in the darkness at the upright. This is language borrowed from the world of assassins. No doubt, uh, David's life was in danger, physically in danger. Hmm. It's hard to know, though, whether... I say this, we probably can't say dogmatically that there were literal assassins waiting around with their bows pulled back like this. This is language which is used frequently in the Psalms to describe peril in a very poetic sort of way. Elsewhere in the Psalms, this sort of language is used to describe not physical assassination, but character assassination. Listen to Psalm 57, verse 4. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue is a sharp sword. Or Psalm 64, verses 2 to 4. Hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They aimed their bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. Perhaps it's this sort of backstabbing character assassination which David's friends are seeing, which they fear will eventually result in real physical assassination. There are all sorts of backstage plots and schemes, a lot of chatter in the background being made against David. David's friends were hearing it. David wasn't apparently seeing as much of it as they were. And it wasn't really only David who was the target of these things. Look at what they say there in verse 2. To shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. Not only him, but all those who lived like David in that time were in fear, were in danger of this kind of conflict. And they were in trouble primarily because they were upright. It was because of their righteous living that they were made easy targets for those who felt threatened by that sort of holiness. I tell you, if we're going to be in trouble with the outside world, let it be this kind of trouble. Trouble for our righteousness and for our godliness and not trouble for being lawbreakers and bad citizens and other such things. This is what 1 Peter chapter 4 talks about. If, if you suffer, let it be for righteousness' sake. One thing's for certain, though, in any kind of suffering, if we keep our focus on our problems, they're only going to get bigger. And that's what David's friends were doing. That was the mistake they had made. His well-meaning friends thought this way, and they didn't stop there. They actually went on to philosophize about it a little bit. And that leads us to verse 3, which, again, is a continuation of this statement from David's friends. In this verse, we find that fear tells us to abandon hope. Fear tells us to abandon hope. They say, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Literally, if the foundations are being thrown down. This is a metaphor for the institutions of society. Civil order just collapsing and crumbling. Now, uh, I suppose I can see from one perspective why there would be such despair and hopelessness. I mean, what, what is one of the primary purposes of civil government and social order? Uh, or, well, civil government is primarily to provide order to society. The systems of government are intended to check corruption 
Oh, but woe unto a people when those systems themselves become corrupt. Because not only are they corrupt themselves, but then they have a corrupting influence upon the society. David's friends are looking at the society of their day and their, their observation is that everything has fallen down. What is there left for us to do but run? You know, this verse, interestingly, is often quoted by evangelical leaders, well-meaning evangelical leaders, as sort of a battle cry for us to be politically active and reclaim Christian America. Sometimes you'll get action newsletters or emails from various groups and you'll see this verse emblazoned on the top of the letterhead or on the top of the email. If the foundations are destroyed, what shall the righteous do? Now, what's ironic to me is I think most Christians don't realize that this statement is not an expression of faith, but an expression of despair. David is actually chastising his friends for thinking this way. Uh, in, in current society, we have a great example before us. Every four years, a lot of Christians get very, very worried. And it's not because of leap year either. Because of elections. Christians, many are worried that our nation is going to get <clears throat> carried away. Or maybe there's some who are afraid we will get bushwhacked. Four years ago, there was the fear we would be gored. Remember this, you know? Okay, enough of that. Um, but, but, you know, uh, do, you, do you sense it when you talk to people? There's this anxiety. What happens if the election doesn't go the way we as the Christian community feels it ought to go? What will happen to our society? It will just go down the tubes, etc. And there's this sense of anxiety and fear and despair David would not have us think that way. I think there is a proper place for Christian involvement in society. There is such a thing as good Christian citizenry. I'm not convinced that uh, many within the evangelical community have found the right balance of that. So I do encourage you, beloved, you better go vote next month or, or you're being an unfaithful citizen. Uh, but don't, don't get carried away with the fear that seems to permeate so much of well-meaning Christians. David's friends felt like the whole world order was lost. David knew that their advice was well-meaning, but he also saw that it was too full of fear. His response to them was not to flee, as they suggested, but to respond with faith. And the rest of the psalm teaches that even if all of society goes to hell, we don't need to fear. So we come to the second movement of the psalm. And now it's no longer David's friends who are speaking. It's David giving a response. In verses 4 to 7, we see how faith strengthens us to face adversity. We would flee. Faith strengthens us to face adversity that we would flee. David's friends seem to know very well what his enemies are doing. Now, David is going to tell them what God is doing. Look at verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. This half of the verse teaches us that faith 
reminds us that God still sits on the throne. Faith reminds us that God still sits on the throne. The Lord is in His holy temple. I think this reference to the temple is not that tabernacle on the hill in uh, set up. Actually, if this was in the days of Saul, it would not have even, perhaps not even been set up in Jerusalem yet at this point, but it wasn't that tabernacle in which God chose to abode, that earthly temple, that portable temple known as the tabernacle. But I think the next phrase makes clear that this is the heavenly temple of God, which is being spoken of. His throne, the Lord's throne is in the heavens. Um, the Old Testament talks about there being a tabernacle or a temple in heaven. Listen to, listen to Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is the place that I may rest? His temple is in heaven. God is transcendent. He is above every earthly opponent. Saul may be reigning on earth, yes, but the Lord reigns on high. God has not fled from Saul. And so David does not feel that he needs to either. As Derek Kidner says, David's God is still in residence. He is not in flight. And God is not just sitting idly by in heaven either. Look at the end of verse 4 and also verse 5. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Faith reminds us that God examines all things. Faith reminds us that God examines all things. His eyes behold. Make no mistake about it. God knows everything that's going on in this fallen world. Every injustice, every inequity, every unrighteousness, every display of godliness, even if it be concealed in the highest of places, God sees. His eyes behold. One of the most frustrating things in organized sports has to be referees because they are imperfect. And we feel especially bad about this if, if they are negatively impacting our favorite team or even ourselves when we're playing. How many times have fans or even athletes looked at a referee or wished they could talk to a referee and ask or say, hey, he missed the tag or he hacked him to death? Or, didn't you see that? Don't you have eyes? Get a pair of glasses. Right? You've heard people talk this way. But God is not one who misses anything. He sees it all. He knows the score. Nothing goes by Him. And David finds tremendous comfort in that. That fuels his faith in the midst of adversity. A couple of weeks ago, my church office was burglarized. Someone popped a window and jacked the window open and uh, made off with, fortunately, not uh, didn't clean me out, but got some important things. We don't have a security service on our campus, so I decided instead uh, that we'd put up some signs suggesting that we did. And so the signs say, this campus is under surveillance by sovereign security. Hmm. 
<laughs> we'll see if it works. <laughs> the police are probably never going to catch that crook who broke into my office. But yeah, that's all right. Nothing ever slips by God's notice. God sees. And as the rest of the psalm tells us, God makes all wrongs right. Look at the next phrase. His eyes behold, and then his eyelids test the sons of men. This is an unusual expression. Eyelids testing. The word for test here is the word for proving metals. Testing metals. Refining them in the fire to see what's in them. What sort of dross. What sort of purity there is within them. It says that God's eyelids test. It's sort of depicting that squinting look that someone in authority gives you when they're suspicious of what you're saying or what you're doing. It's that look that maybe if you work in an office and you have a salesman, a, you know, a cheating salesman who calls and claims that you have a standing account with them and wants to, you know, you to order something already and you're thinking about your records and you sort of look at him like, hmm, that doesn't seem right. It's the look your mother used to give you when you were telling a tall tale and she saw through it. And she was scrutinizing your face and your gestures and your behavior. God scrutinizes the behavior of men. And He never makes a misjudgment of character. His evaluations are always right. Verse 4 continues with this imagery. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. The word test here, same word as back in verse 4. So God is not only looking out upon the wicked to analyze their behavior, but notice this. God is also looking at us in our adversity to see what we are made of. How are we responding to what we're facing? His eyelids are testing us as well. What is a trial of character for the oppressor is a trial of endurance for the believer. David does not run away at this point because he, know that God, he knows that God is trying him in the process, is trying to prove something in the life of David. To run at this point for David would be to be running from God's test. I like what Charles Spurgeon says on this passage. He says, we, we should not distrustfully shun a trial. For in so doing, we are actually avoiding a blessing. That's worth chewing on, isn't it? Look how verse 5 ends. It ends with a very pungent note, doesn't it? And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. God is not dispassionate about the sufferings of His people, about the passions of those creatures He has made. He emotes. He cares. He is concerned. And He does respond appropriately. His soul hates those who love violence. This is one of those passages of Scripture where, you know, as a preacher, what I'm supposed to say right now, if I'm a typical evangelical, is to say, well, of course, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And, you know, that's true. But it's also true, according to verses like this, that 
it can be said God also hates the sinner. God's love and His hatred are mixed together in perfect holiness. It is true that God loves the world, but it's also true that He hates the ungodly. That's a balance that's difficult for us to understand, but one that only a holy being can properly maintain. God's divine love, His mercy, holds back the fullness of His hatred and His wrath for a while. But without repentance, eventually, that mercy will expire and it will be the wrath of God that is experienced. Maybe it's hard for us to understand this, but David actually finds a bit of comfort in that. Not so much that David is sadistic and thinking, oh, one day they're going to get theirs and I'm going to be there applauding as they enter the gates of hell. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that kind of twisted, demented delight. But, but there is a sense of beauty to the justice of God. There is a beauty of His holiness to think that God, there is a perfect being who knows what the score is and who will settle all wrongs. And therefore, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And therefore, the believer is not to take vengeance into his own hand. Verses 6 and 7 build upon this. What does it mean that God hates those who love violence? Those who are engaged in the sort of plotting and scheming and destroying that David's friends were so worried about. Verses 6 to 7 we see here, faith reminds us that God rectifies all wrongs. Faith reminds us that God rectifies, makes right, all wrongs. Look at verses 6 and 7. Upon the wicked He will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. If this is the right way to translate this phrase, that would mean that difficulty, trouble after trouble after trouble is going to come upon these people as much as the rain falling from heaven. There's another way of translating the phrase, the Lord will uh, rain coals of fire. It's difficult to know exactly which spelling of the Hebrew text is to be taken here, but... The rest of the, the phrases make clear the sort of trouble, snares, that's being spoken of. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Before I talk a little bit about fire and brimstone and burning wind, uh, what's this thing about the cup? It will be their cup? In an oriental meal in the ancient Near East, the head of the family or the head of the house or the host would sit at table and it was his honor to pass the drink to guests at the table. You received your cup from the one at the head of the table. Jesus does this with His disciples as they're observing Passover, what we know as the Last Supper. Jesus passes the cup to them. In a way, all of humanity sits before God's presence at His table. They're a friend and foe, and the foes receive a cup from Him. But it is a cup of wrath. It is a cup of burning and brimstone and fire. What cup is it that the righteous receive? What does Psalm 23 verse 5 says? say, the, the cup of the righteous 
overflows with blessing. Uh, He fills my cup. He anoints my head with oil. He fills, and that's clearly blessing. Yes. Not so with the wicked. When they finally receive from God His cup, it's with these fearful things, fire and brimstone. This is uh, the same language used to describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not certain that David is thinking specifically of hellfire when he writes these words. Sodom and Gomorrah had fire and brimstone fall upon them, not in eternity, but in time, in history. And perhaps David thinks of the coming of the Lord, the end of history, not so much eternity, when there will be destruction such as this. The next expression, burning wind, is uh, something... Uh, if this is referring to hell, this is the only reference to it, but seems to be referring to the weather patterns of Palestine. There are winds that blow out of the eastern deserts in the Middle East called the Samum, or sometimes they're called the Sirocco winds, scorching winds that rip through uh, the region out of the deserts. They're exactly the same kind of winds as our Santa Ana winds that blow when the seasons change. They come out of the deserts and fill the air with junk and, and heat. In Palestine, those winds, the Samum, the Sirocco winds, are much hotter, carry much more debris, and are so devastating that they can kill vegetation overnight. When I was in Israel years ago, uh, James has seen this, I'm sure maybe some of the others of you have gone, we went from Jerusalem down to Jericho through the Judean wilderness, and through the spring, much of that is green, somewhat lush, but... We were told that the Sirocco winds had come through two weeks before and now everything was barren and brown. There's a passage of Scripture, actually a phrase that's repeated several times in Scripture. One time it shows up as Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. It says, All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. But the grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. That phraseology is taken from the weather reports of ancient Israel. The wind blowing and wilting grass and flowers overnight. That's the burning wind that David is speaking of here in this psalm. Dramatic picture. Speaking of the sure and unstoppable judgment that will come upon those who remain in their wickedness. Sometimes God's judgment does fall in history as it did upon Sodom and Gomorrah, as it did in numerous instances in Israel's history against its foes and sometimes even on Israel itself. And we know from reading the rest of Scripture that at the end of human history, there will be a catastrophic falling of the judgment of God upon the ungodly. It's called the Great Tribulation. And of course, there is that other form of punishment that other burning, that other place of brimstone for which there is no end, the judgment of eternity. David is certain of these righteous judgments. And therefore, he's not filled with anxiety about the misjudgments and the ill judgments being pronounced upon him. He knows that God is on his throne. God sees. God is making a proper evaluation And one day, God will make right all the wrongs. 
Spurgeon, I quote from him again, he says, O people of God, how foolish it is to fear the faces of men who shall soon be twigs in the fire of hell. Think of their end, their fearful end, and all fear of them must be changed into contempt of their threatenings and pity for their miserable estate. David is looking at his adversity through the eyes of faith. And for now, that instructs him to stay and not to flee. Verse 7 is the flip side of these promises of God making wrongs right. Not only is there a promise of judgment for the unrepentant wicked, but there is a promise of blessing to the afflicted righteous. For the Lord is righteous. And that's why He judges wickedness. And because the Lord is righteous and judges wickedness, also on the other side, the Lord blesses those who are righteous. The upright will behold His face. The implication is that upon the unjust, God's face is turned. Or if His face is upon Him, His countenance is one of wrath and sore displeasure. We're told, uh, we're told in the book of Thessalonians that one of the First Thessalonians, one of the descriptions of judgment is being turned away from the presence of the Lord. But the flip side is so encouraging. You may be facing an awful lot of bad things. Circumstances that seem beyond your control. Things that normally would lead you to despair. It might be family. It might be work. It might be school. It might even be church. It be all sorts of things. But whatever things are facing you now, there's the blessed promise that you will one time, at some point, have an uninterrupted encounter with the presence of God to behold His face and to know that blessedness and that smiling countenance upon you. Faith gives us a clear perception of God's reality and His presence. And if the, if the judgments spoken of before are future events, are eschatological or eternal, then perhaps so also is this reference to the believer seeing God's face. And the sufferings that we go through now are not worthy to be compared with the weight of glory that awaits us when we see Him face to face. Adversity calls for faith, not flight. Remember, please, dear ones, brothers, sisters, that fear is what tempts us to run away. It's faith that enables us to stay when God would have us stay. I don't know what sort of things that you're facing. There's a whole host of different things that make you want to leave, make you want to quit, give up and run. I encourage you to do inventory on your heart when you feel those urgings, those impulses, to determine what it is that's motivating it. Is it wisdom Or is it simply fear? If it's fear, don't follow that. You will regret that so much. There are so many lessons 
and blessings to be gained through going through God's tests. But you will miss. Respond in faith. Seek asylum in Him. And the Lord, take your refuge. Father, we thank You for this psalm. We see the pathos of David's friends and even of David himself as they consider the trials, the difficulties, the great distresses, life-threatening events even. But you were teaching David's heart through wisdom to respond in faith. And we need that sort of instruction, dear God. We need to grow in that kind of wisdom to know when to stay, when to go. We pray that you would give us hearts that are maturing and spirits that are sensitive to the wisdom that comes from you. Help us to be good counselors to one another and not fill one another with fear and distress, but rather to fuel one another's faith in our sovereign God who is still on his throne, still ruling from heaven. With thanks, we give this prayer and give ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.